Welcome to the Well Studying Podcast. This is episode 303. Today is December 7th, 2019. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, welcome back. I hope you had a blessed and wonderful Thanksgiving with your family and friends. We all certainly have a lot to be thankful and grateful for, especially a stock market that is, you know, pretty much right around all time record highs. Even though this has been the most disparaged and unpopular rally and bull market that I can ever remember. That's pretty much what we're going to talk about today. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about Ray Dalio and some of the comments he's made. And this will relate not only to him, but other billionaires and luminaries in the investment industry. How I think they've been wrong about the economy and what I think they're missing. That's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Before we do... Quick note that I want to mention before we get into today's topic, and that's that I receive a lot of questions from listeners about their specific portfolio or what I think of a particular stock. I don't encourage it because I simply don't have the time to answer everybody's question, and I don't monetize this podcast. You know, I don't have any type of Patreon or other kind of support. I do this podcast out of a labor of love. It's something I enjoy doing. I know I don't do it as much as some of you would like me to do, but again, that's just because of the time constraints I have. This is not something I monetize. I make my money by investing in the stock market and servicing clients whose money I invest in the stock market. The media that I put out, like this podcast or my blog or my YouTube channel, hey, that's just all fun stuff I put out there for free. You can take it for what it's worth, but it isn't a source of income, and so it's not something I can dedicate a great deal of time to. And so that's why I really don't encourage getting a lot of listener feedback and questions, because I don't want you to get your hopes up thinking that you can email me and that I can answer everybody's question. I simply don't have the time. Having said that, though, I am in the holiday spirit. Cheer and goodwill are flowing throughout my body. And so in the spirit of the holiday season, I'm going to invite you to send me a very specific question. And I'm not going to answer these individually, but I will do at least one podcast episode where I cover these questions and specifically what I'm looking for is what stock or what exchange-traded fund or what mutual fund would you like me to analyze? I'll take your suggestion and I'll put together at least one podcast episode where I'll break it down. I'll tell you what I do or don't like about that stock. I'll talk about price and volume, uh, trends, fundamentals. I'll go through the different steps that I use to analyze positions that I take. So we'll put that together. We'll do this over the holiday season, you know, sometime between... Kwanzaa and the winter solstice, I'll make sure that I get the episode recorded. Now, one caveat to this is that if I get 10,000 different questions to analyze a stock, I'm not going to be able to do that for everybody. But what I'll do is if I get a large response, I'll try and pick out similarities or, you know, a common stock or a type of stock that most people are interested in. And so that way I'll try and address most people's concerns. And on the other hand, if we only get a couple requests, Well, that'll be easy to answer in one episode. So, hey, there it is. I'm inviting you to go to wellsteading.com, use the contact form there, tell me what stock, ETF, or mutual fund you'd like me to analyze, and we'll get that done. Now, as far as today's topic, which is that I believe that Ray Dalio is mad at the markets. Now, you may not know who Ray Dalio is. Chances are you do. He's a very successful billionaire. He heads up, I believe, the world's largest hedge fund. He's a good man. He's someone that I respect. I'm not 
throwing his name out there to disparage him or say anything bad about him. I think he's genuinely a very good man. I think he's a very intelligent man and he's been a very successful investor. I just happen to disagree with him lately with some of the comments he's made. Now, in particular, what I'm talking about is that about a month ago, he put out an article in LinkedIn and it was entitled, The World Has Gone Mad and the System is Broken. Well, with a gloom and doomy headline like that, you can imagine how much people in the media piggybacked on that. And that, so that got a lot of press. It got a lot of attention. He's done a great deal of interviews. And so consequently, I've heard from many of you that were concerned about his statements. And you're concerned about an economic collapse or everything falling apart. So that's why I want to do today's episode. I want to point out why I think that Ray Dalio was wrong. And the corollary to all this is also that just because Ray Dalio is a good man and a successful investor and a billionaire and runs the largest hedge fund in the world, it doesn't mean that he's right all the time. And that's why you need to take everything with a grain of salt. Whenever you read or you see something in the media, whether it's from a journalist or an expert or a billionaire or such and such, whatever it is, remember, this is just another human being. It's simply a matter of opinion. It's their worldview. It's the narrative that the media wants you to have. Now, that doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's wrong. But it's simply an opinion. It's not a statement of fact. None of us can predict the future. None of us has a secret algorithm that's going to accurately predict the movement of the stock market. That's the bottom line. That's what you have to realize. So specifically to Ray Dalio and the comments he's made, you know, he said the world has gone mad and the system is broken. Well, no, I don't think the world has gone mad, nor do I think the system is broken. In fact, I think that Ray Dalio is mad at the market, and I think he's mad at the market because his particular models are broken. The way he has looked at the economy and the way he's invested in the stock market is not working over the past year or two, and he's not happy about that. And so rather than accept the blame and admit that his models have broken down. Instead, what he has done is he's blamed the market. And he's saying that the system is broken, not that his system is broken. Now, again, in defense of Ray Dalio, he's a human being. It's hard for any of us to admit that we make a mistake. And I'm not going to hold myself up as the bastion of purity and say that I've never done this. So the point here, again, is not to bash Ray Dalio or to point out his human frailties. The point is to make you a better investor. And one of the ways you can do that is by filtering the media and knowing what information is factual versus what information is simply opinion-based. I think Ray Dalio is expressing an opinion, and I think that opinion is going to be wrong in the immediate future, just like it's been wrong in the immediate past. And again, I'm not picking on Ray Dalio, but you can read the Wall Street Journal articles that have pointed out that Ray Dalio's funds and a number of other high-profile billionaire investors, their portfolios have drastically, drastically underperformed the performance of the S&P 500 this year because so many of them went into 2019 with a negative bias, anticipating a recession, and that recession didn't take place. But let me break down and tell you why I think that people like Ray Dalio have been so wrong about the imminent breakdown of the economy. And it's because they're using old models. 
Ray Dalio is an expert of the business cycle, and in particular, what happens to the economy through the expansion and contraction of monetary debt. He's a brilliant man. He's written many articles and books about it, and I don't disagree with those things that he said based on a historical basis. In fact, I do use those in my own modeling and my own assumption about where the economy's headed. But I think the flaw that is in Mr. Dalio's thinking and in other people's thinking right now is that they're trying to apply too much and too literally and too linearly what has happened in the past and how that's going to relate to the future. And you have to realize that history doesn't repeat itself, right? Mark Twain had the great quote of saying, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. That rhyme, I believe, occurs because human nature never changes. So while the events and the specific circumstances always change, and so they don't repeat themselves, but they do rhyme, they do have parallels, what's consistent is that human nature remains the same. People always have fear. People always have greed. People have the same desires and passions and good and evil that they're constantly dealing with throughout history. So the events and the circumstances change, and the outcomes are never exactly the same, but we can make some educated guesses by what will happen based on knowing that people act more on human nature and human emotion than they do on human intellect. And so when Mr. Dalio goes back and looks at the history of debt cycles and specifically looks at what happened during the Great Depression or tries to relate what's happening now to what happened in, say, 1920s or the 1930s, I think where he's missing the boat is that he's trying to make a direct correlation between things like income inequality or debt-to-GDP ratios or corporate debt or interest rates. He's trying to impose all those things that happened almost a century ago to what's going to happen in the immediate future, but it doesn't mean that things are going to happen exactly the same way. And specifically to what's going on in our immediate future, and I think in our long-term future, there are two big key issues to why we are currently in uncharted territory and why none of the past models or theories are going to accurately predict what's happening in the future. Now, it's going to come as no surprise to you that one of those factors is technology. That's why I wrote a book entitled, The Robots Are Coming, A Human Survival Guide to Profiting in the Age of Automation. Because technology is coming together in ways like it has never happened before in the history of mankind. From the standpoint of automation and computing power and big data and Internet of Things and robotics and Moore's Law and computing power and the overall low cost of technology. Just the impact that this has had in our economy over the last 60 or 70 years and the way it's all coming together now and how that's going to affect the next 60 years are just almost unfathomable. Now, there's a lot of different ways we can go with technology. The one thing I want to emphasize in today's episode and the big impact I think it's having on the economy now and well into the future is the deflationary effect of technology. You get a product that's better at a lower cost, and so you're not only paying less for it, but it enhances the human experience or it makes the human's activity more productive. That's deflationary. You combine that with the other mega trend, which is declining population. That's the demographics that we're currently going through, not just in the United States, not just in the developed world, but throughout the globe. 
depopulation or declining demographics by its very nature is deflationary. Those two very strong forces are pulling in the opposite direction of inflationary forces through government spending, government debt, and central bank monetary policy of printing money. And where this is tripping people up is if you just look at the last hundred years or so of economic history, you'll see the ravages of inflation and you'll see what monetary expansion and endless government debt create. They create business cycles of booms and busts that occur as the currency is debased and the purchasing power of the currency goes down and the debt levels go up to points where they're unsustainable. Those are the types of economic models that people like Ray Dalio are using and studying from the past and applying to the future. But what he's not taking into account is the huge counterbalance that's occurring from these deflationary forces, the forces of technology and depopulation. Those are acting to counterbalance and counterweigh the effects of government overspending over debt and expansion of the monetary policy. And just to touch on this and put it into simple terms, because this isn't an academic exercise. This is something that we see happening. It's been happening for at least the last 75 or 100 years. But just like technology has been improving over that period of time, the consequences and the outcomes and the effects are getting magnified now, and they're going to become even more important going forward over the next one or two generations. And again, just to show that this isn't an academic or a thought exercise, let's look at what's happened with the one-child policy in China. Now, first of all, you have to remember that the one-child policy wasn't exactly a one-child policy. It was mostly imposed on people living in urban areas. The people in rural areas didn't have the one-child policy imposed on them as much as it was imposed on people in urban areas, you know, simply for the fact that, well, it's harder to control people in rural areas, and also people in rural areas need more labor power and more children being born to sustain their their quality of life and their living. So the one-child policy was mostly imposed on urban areas And we know that China didn't have exactly a one-child policy because if we look at the outcome of it, we can see that the fertility rate of China is about 1.6. And if the Chinese Communist Party had truly imposed a one-child policy, well, their fertility rate wouldn't be at 1.6. It would be, you know, closer to 1. Now, even though that policy has been rescinded and it has been rescinded because it's a disaster and it gets into the topic of what I'm discussing in today's podcast, It's that you can't have a growing economy if you have a declining human population base. Oh, initially it looks good, but over time, as you have less and less people, you can't have a growth in the economy because it's not only deflationary, it's downright destructive to growth, right? It's just a matter of supply and demand. Prices go up and demand goes up when more products and services are consumed. But if you have less people, then by definition... They're going to require less products and services, and so not only will the price come down, but so will overall economic growth simply because of the fact that you've had demand destruction. If you don't have people, they will not buy products and services. Now let's look at this one-child policy. If that occurs over two generations, then you've drastically reduced the amount of people in your population. Right? Think of it this way. It's four, two, one. You have two sets of grandparents, that's four people, 
If you have a one-child policy in the first generation, those two couples have one child. Now that one child grows up and marries someone of the opposite sex that also came from a one-child policy family. And now you have the second generation. This is the parents. That couple now has one child. And so over the course of two generations, as that grandchild is growing up and as that grandchild becomes an adult, assuming that the grandparents are living long enough, you're going to end up with a period in time where you have a nuclear family that consists of seven adults and probably four households, right? You have seven adults, you have the four grandparents, the two parents, and the one adult grandchild. That's seven human beings. And if they're all adults, you likely have at least four households, right? The two grandparents, they live in two separate households. The parents live in their own household and the adult grandchild now has their own household or the house they live in. So you have seven adults, four households. From an economic standpoint, think of what that means. If you have at least four households, well then you have four houses or four apartments and you have four kitchens. And in those kitchens, you have four refrigerators. And in the refrigerator, you have four bottles of ketchup, right? You see how this is going. Four households consisting of seven adults creates an economy with a lot of demand. Now you take that nuclear family and you go forward 10, 20, 30 years. And that's currently from a global standpoint, the period of time we're living in. Well, what occurs? Well, the grandparents get old and they pass away. And then the parents get old and they pass away. And so now that grandchild is not only an adult, but it's an adult in middle age. And since you're two generations into a one-child policy, that middle-aged adult grandchild now has not only no nuclear family left, but it has no family left. It has no brothers and sisters. It has no aunts or uncles. It has no nieces or nephews. That's depopulation. And as a result of that, what happens? You don't have four households. You don't have seven adults consuming products and services. Those four households and seven adults have been reduced to one adult and one household. And even if that adult grandchild has grown up and married and has had a couple kids, from a population standpoint, it has still not replaced the nuclear family that it came from. And less people means less demand for products and services, which is deflationary and results in lower growth in the economy. That's the circumstance and the paradox that we're in, and that's why it's different than any prior time in history, because never has this much depopulation occurred. At the same time, technology is advancing at an even greater rate, and it's not regional. It's not happening in one continent or one country or with one culture. The exponential expansion in technology and the depopulation is occurring essentially around the world. And I mean that literally. Right now, it's estimated the fertility rate among women is only 2.5. You need 2.1 to maintain your population. So on a global basis, on a global scale, we're barely at a rate where we're sustaining the population. And really, if you get outside of the continent of Africa and a few countries in the Middle East, virtually no other countries are even at a maintenance level. And in fact, many, many of them are at a rate that's so low that there's no way they're going to maintain their population over the next, you know, multiple generations. 
the country of Taiwan has a fertility rate of about 1.2. Remember, you need 2.1 just to maintain where you're at. So if Taiwan stays at a rate of 1.2, in about 60 years, there's going to be less than half as many Taiwanese as there are right now. And it's not limited to just small island nations where we're seeing this. Portugal, Spain, Italy, Ukraine, they're only at about 1.3. In fact, there's no country in Europe that has a sustainable population rate. All the fertility rates are below 2 in Europe. The two European countries with the highest fertility rate are Ireland at 1.9 and France at 2.8. You've got places like the Netherlands that are about 1.75. Russia, same thing, about 1.75. And leaving Europe, that's the same thing you're seeing in other developed countries. Japan is below 1.5. Canada's barely at about 1.5. The U.S. is only at about 1.8. And the reason we're that high is because of the influx of Hispanics. If you look at a breakdown of the United States based on ethnicity, you can see that fertility rate among white non-Hispanics is about 1.7, black non-Hispanics about 1.8, and Asians are about 1.7. Now, if you look at American Hispanics of any race, they're not even at the replacement fertility rate. They're only right around 2 and I don't think that we're going to see an expansion of the Hispanic population uh, for a couple reasons. And it has nothing to do with the wall or, you know, Trump or what he's trying to do with immigration. It just has to do with the changing dynamics of what's going on. And number one, as we have more automation, we're going to need less and less low-skilled labor coming in from south of the border. That's number one. Number two, and this is even a bigger reason, is that if you look at the American Hispanic fertility rate, well, it's below the replacement rate, it's only at two, but that's because all of Latin America in general also has low fertility rates. And so the source of Hispanics is getting smaller. Brazil, Costa Rica, Chile, I know they're way down in South America, but their fertility rates are only at 1.7. They're about what the white non-Hispanic fertility rate of the United States is. Even in Mexico, the Mexican fertility rate is barely above 2.1. And that's the same with Nicaragua, Argentina, Venezuela. And then you get into the other countries that are right around you know, 2.3, not even at 2.5. That's places like Peru, Honduras, Ecuador, Paraguay, Belize, and Panama. Like I mentioned earlier, the fact of the matter is that other than the continent of Africa and a couple countries in the Middle East, the world overall is experiencing rapid depopulation. The overall global fertility rate, only about 2.5, that makes it slightly above what you need to sustain the population. A decrease in population means a decrease in overall economic activity and deflationary forces. And that specifically goes back to why people like Ray Dalio and others that are worried about this immense amount of debt from governments and and too much monetary expansion from the central banks, what they're missing in all this is the reason the system hasn't collapsed yet, and the reason I don't think is going to collapse going into the immediate future, is that the markets and the governments and the central banks, they haven't gone mad. The system is just in a long-term course of deflation. And that's why they can keep inflating the monetary base 
and we don't see rapid hyperinflation taking place. Look at the places in the world that have the lowest negative rates. Countries like Japan and Germany have been at negative rates for, I don't know, five years now. Well, what are the fertility rates of Germany and Japan? They're both under 1.5. Those countries, although they're the third and fourth largest global GDP countries, they've attained their economic growth not by growing and expanding their domestic market, but by exporting. They can't grow and expand in their own country because they have population decline. That's why they have negative interest rates and yet why their economic systems haven't collapsed. So no, I don't think the world has gone mad, nor do I think the system is broken. I think what we're seeing in the marketplace, and in particular by central bank monetary policy, I think you're seeing an overall market response to the reality of what's occurring, which is exponential growth in technology and a rapid decrease in the human population. And I don't think it's going to result in an economic collapse as much as I think it's going to result in some amazing investment opportunities. And that doesn't mean the world's going to be all rosy. It doesn't mean there's not going to be speed bumps along the way. And it doesn't mean that some countries or some systems won't fall apart. Because I do think there'll be troubled markets ahead. But the whole system isn't going to come down. And I believe that for now anyways, the United States will be the last man standing. Or at least the continent of North America. Regardless of what political structure it may take on. Well, hey, am I right or wrong? Well, as always, you're going to have to come back for future episodes to find out. And in this case, it may take a couple generations to work itself all out. So, hey, until the next time, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.